0: This is from the Shiroku collection of Korans, case 44. Jingyang's Garuda introduction. A lion strikes an elephant, Garuda strikes a dragon. Flying and running, they still distinguish ruler and subject. patch monk should remember guest and host. But how can someone who brazenly affronts the authority be judged? The case. Monk asked Master Jingyang, Dragon King comes out of the sea. Sky and earth are tranquil. How is direct presentation? The master said, The Galuda bird takes command of the universe. Who can stick his head out there? The monk said, suppose one suddenly appears, then what? Jingyang said, it's like a falcon catching a pigeon. If you don't realize, check in front of the tower. Then for the first time, you'll know the real. The monk said, if so, then I'll fold my hands on my chest and retreat three p- paces. Jingyang said, you blind turtle under the seat of Mount Sumeru. Don't wait for another scaring from the wrap on the head. The verse. The imperial decree comes down. The commanding order is distinct. Within the heartland, the emperor. Outside the borders, the general. Without waiting, the thunder to rust the insects. How could he know the wind stops the coursing clouds? A continuous weave under the loom, naturally there is gold needle and jade thread. Before the seal is wide open emptiness. Originally, there is no writing. I assume you noticed the heat kicked in today, right? Those of you who have been here before remember many cold periods of Zazen in the Zendo. Dawn Zazen, late at night. Now there's heat. Is it good for our spiritual maturation? (laughs) I guess we'll see. Sometimes too much heat can numb us. There's something very powerful about cold exposure within reason. Engaging with spiritual practice is radically different than any other endeavor we take on. And it is so since the evolution of spiritual maturation process does not correlate with our binary, linear, and achievement-based way of thinking. Viewing this process of spiritual evolution through the scope of our thinking mind, it appears that we enter the gate of formal practice from a place called delusion. If we keep walking on the path long enough, we will arrive at another place called enlightenment. To our conditioned way of being, it makes perfect sense to think that diligent practitioners who embrace the Zen tradition wholeheartedly will eventually be rewarded by arriving at a perceived goal. This way of thinking gives rise to the notion that we lack something at this point, but if we pay the dues and work hard, it will be given to us at some later point. And this way of thinking seems to fit well when we go to school, get a degree or certificate, or when putting the hours in and gradually moving up the promotion ladder at work. But it doesn't fit the maturation process of spiritual evolution because we are not living someplace and arriving at another we're definitely not becoming anything other than what we already are in essence. So to fully embrace spiritual practice, we need to transcend our obsessive preoccupation with time or clock time or timeline and make a radical shift from a conventional, time-based way of thinking to a timeless way of being. Our common dysfunctional relationship with time gives rise to the perpetuation of our harmful karma and the creation of the egoic self. In fact, it lives on it. The monk asked Joshua once, how can I practice 24 hours a day? And Joshua said, do not be used by the 24 hours of the day. How do I master Time, rather than be servant of time or slave to time. We're being used by our conceptual relationship with the passing time and it manifests in many ways. Trying to escape unpleasant thoughts, spend time daydreaming, turning to our preferred self-soothing fantasies, reside in the past and jump from one memory to another, or maybe seek comfort in futurizing and imagining. We also may be trying to escape the silence and the feeling of loneliness, or we may hide behind the silence and escape the loudness of our daily life and all the people that we happen to be sharing it with. And these are common universal examples, but there are endless ways we cleverly try to avoid looking directly at the fundamental truth of our existence. And when we get busy trying to distract ourselves from direct experience, we are not practicing the 24 hours of the day, and we are at the mercy of time, either waiting for it to go by fast or hoping it will never end depending on how we feel about what shows up. So Joshua's advice, if you want to practice at all times, watch the many ways you check out and allow yourself to be used by your fixed ideas of the passing time. Or look at the frantic ways we function in our everyday life, serving time. It's kind of like that, isn't it? It's like serving time in jail. So we need to watch the conceptual gap between who we think we are and what we think time is. The separation, the gap between being and time creates a separate sense of self that clings to karmic entanglements and uses it for its own self-preservation. There's very intimate relationship between karma and time. Not karma as a fact of life, but the way we meet karma, the way we deal with karma. The creation of a conceptual and the attachment, conceptual the attachment to it is intimately tied up with the creation of who we think we are. Chogyam Trumpa said, the process of self-preservation and self-defense develops because we have a sense of time, of past, present, and future. In terms of our own preservation, the past is the memories of our achievements and the memories of establishing ourselves, who we think we are. The future is the possibility of continuing that particular scenario while the present is solidifying all of it. See how sticky it is? Then he says, we have developed too much reference to time trying to record our successive achievements and the accomplishments we've collected we have made a huge file and case history out of it, constantly recording our achievements. So the corpse, corpse of the present is being preserved as a record. And it is kind of like that, right? Dead men walking. And as we go along, we continue to achieve, but the whole process is more past-oriented, because of our emphasis on recording everything. We have recourse to our records as a way of proving ourselves and also as a way of digging up new information. If emergencies come up, we can reuse our old records and try to repeat our experiences from the past. So this process of recording goes on constantly. And obviously, there is a big issue there, right? Trying to dig out stuff from the past and force it on what's happening now. And the notion of later, later I will become enlightened, that notion itself maintains the notion of I am now deluded. If I think I will become enlightened later by implication I am saying something about the way I am now. I am saying something fixed about where I'm at now, about who I am now. And the problem with such notions is that they maintain a sense of fragmented reality which of course fits very well with time, and a grasping self. and It's a common issue for us as human beings, and Zen training is a viable path that leads from the notion of fragmented reality to a realization of unified totality. But when unity is realized, is there anyone there who can say, I have realized? If you say, I have realized, are you not standing outside that which you claim to have realized? Are you not creating a duality while claiming to have realized unity? This is the notion the monk in this Quran appears to be holding on to. He goes to see his teacher, Jingyang, and he says, A dragon king comes out of the sea, sky and earth are tranquil. How is direct presentation? Dragons, as you know, are depictions of realized beings. And so this guy is saying, he smashed the the chains of delusions and transcended the grip of karma and is no longer hindered by anything like a mighty dragon taking to the sky. But instead of congratulating him, Yang says, the Galuda bird takes command of the universe. Who can stick his head out there? Now, the Galuda bird is a bird-like creature from Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism mythology. She's is believed to be born fully grown, fully awakened, and has great powers and capacities, including the ability and appetite to devour dragons. Interesting bird. So what does this story have to do with us? As interesting as it may be. Now Witnessing the madness of this world, Feeling entangled by the heavy burden of our conditioning and recognizing a deep sense of discontentment, we turn to spiritual practice so we can find some sense of peace and maybe even help propagate some level of compassion and sanity in this mad world we live in. And it all begins by turning inwardly as we do with each thousand period. So here we are, sitting, practicing, diving deep. So let's say that you've been sitting for a while, experienced all kinds of discomfort, pain, but have gone deep, developed some, some degree or some depth of samadhi, and experienced some equanimity and tranquility. And it feels great. And you may feel invincible. Then Zazen ends. Sashin ends. And you're back to dealing with everyday stuff and all the people that show up. And it's almost as if while you are taking the time to cultivate deep meditative states, life is concocting its next assault on you. How to push your buttons. How to trigger all kinds of karmic reactivities. It's highly relevant to our daily Zazen and is most important to work with as we drive down the mountain tomorrow and re-enter the chaos of everyday life after spending a few days immersed in the incredible stillness and silence of Sashin. And it's not just that. It's also being among fellow practitioners. Right? That's, there is something magical about that. Being supported by one another. Creating a container that fosters trust. So we can truly open up and let go. It's not quite the same driving down the mountain. It is the same but some things are not. In Shishin's commentary to this Quran, he wrote what happens when you get up off your cushion? It doesn't actually have to be going down the mountain. It could be here even within the silence. What happens when you get up off your cushion? The dragon only has one foe, the Garuda bird. When the Garuda bird is hunting, it spreads its massive wings and fans the waves and separates the waters of the ocean. It sees the dragons crawling around on the ocean bottom like insects and then dives down and preys on them. Thus, the master in this case says, The Garuda attains the universe at such a time, who would dare to stick his head out? And he says, When you rise from your Zafu, what is the one thing, or are there many, that spoils your tranquility and invincibility? Is it the girlfriend Garuda? The boss Garuda? The baby Garuda? The ex spouse Garuda? The crazy driver in front of you, Garuda. Or just some generic Garuda who happens to penetrate your protective shield. Right? What do we do with all that? It's endless. And it could be just driving down the mountain and looking at the news. It's all the same in that way. It seems to be threatening something that we work so hard to cultivate. And how about the Galuda bird that may be disturbing your peace and creating internal turmoil while being here at Sishin? Right, You may be bothered by the discipline. By being tired and irritable. Actually, somebody left. Said, I I don't want to be here anymore. It feels like jail. Yeah. And it's incredible, right? Because some of you walk into Dokusan with a huge smile. (laughs) I feel so free here. So which is it? You may be bothered by discipline or being tired and irritable or by jihatsu or by not having your personal versions of comfort and entertainment or whatever that may be. On and off the cushion, it appears that our conditioned reactivities keep manifesting and destabilize our state of peace. It appears that there are two There is the tranquility and state of peace and equanimity that I may experience on the cushion while practicing. And then there is all the other stuff. Who is creating the two? Or what is creating the two? The issue is that as long as our state of peace does not include does not include everything and everyone, it will always feel like a battle. Or like two. As long as we identify with these familiar reactivities and become the one who is looking for an exit strategy, samsara and nirvana are going to remain set apart. And long lasting sense of equanimity and contentment will always remain out of reach. Or an escape It may be there as an escape, not as something that we can connect with in our everyday life or dealing with everyday life challenges. So when Xinjiang says to the monk, watch out for the Garuda bird," he's telling us, to completely give up our search for a sense of security and let go of judgments, comparisons, grievances, and all the endless mind maneuvering and storytelling that cleverly sustain the relentless obsession with ourselves. It's not an irritation. It is irritating me. We're okay with irritations. But when when I am being irritated, that's a different story. Because our egoic self is so relentless, it believes that it can succeed where others failed and escape the reality of interconnectedness. Right? I can do it. I can do it. I can disconnect and achieve great depth of realization. A part of all that, away from all that. Jingyang says, the Garuda bird will eat you up. To the monk, to us. And the monk says, okay, well suppose one suddenly appears, then what? One that can beat the Garuda bird. Suppose I out-clever, out-maneuver it. Because I'm special. (laughs) Right? We think we are. We are. Not me, but we are. Oh, I am special because we are special. But that devalues the whole notion of special, doesn't it? If everybody is special, then what's the point? (laughs) Right? So he says, suppose I do it. Suppose one suddenly appears, then what? And Jingyang says, it's like a falcon catching a pigeon. To raise a target is to invite an arrow. Spiritual practice does not produce a spiritual person. It's only our persistent clinging that makes it appear this way. And it's not that there's no realization, it's just that when the realization comes, nobody appears. And again, that devalues the whole thing, right? Are you saying, I am not going to be enlightened? then what am I doing here? I'm not going to get anything out of it? I'm sure your family members and friends say, you're wasting your time, right? You're nuts. It's a good nut. Isn't it? Those who think I've realized and go on to engage the world with such a thought in their mind will be greatly disappointed. Fall on their faces and experience the meaning of it's like a falcon catching a pigeon. And it won't take long either. You can adjust. So Xin Yang then added, if you don't realize, check in front of the tower, then for the first time, you will know the real. So during those times in China, when somebody offended the emperor, he would cut off their heads and hang it in front of the balcony for everyone to see and beware. It's very violent. Maybe a less violent way to see, to, to see that is... Take heed, do not squander your life. Manishishin, again, commentary on this line says, so the master is saying, if you don't understand this thing, take a look at the bodiless heads hanging in front of the balcony and know this isn't a game. This meaning our practice. Every time you see Zazen, it's a matter of life and death. Every time you see Zazen, it's a matter of life and death. Isn't every moment like that a matter of life and death? You know, we, we often talk about the t- paying attention. We don't pay attention to what happens. Well, so maybe, you know, we, we eat jihatsu, right? We use the jihatsu sets and, and we momentarily don't pay attention. We drop a ball and makes a sound. No big deal, right? But attention can mean getting into an accident and dying or, or lack of attention, right? So it actually is a matter of life and death. But we don't think of it this way. There is that. And there is also sleepwalking or being alive right so there is that and this is what we're talking about not just pay attention so you could be safe pay attention because if you don't you don't you're just not fully there you don't partake you're not alive you're somewhere else so it truly it really is, it is a matter of life and death. And we are, we are different. One of those same differences shows up in our relentless attempt of self-preservation, which can be clearly seen in our repetitive reactivities to changing circumstances, which we definitely have to examine. When we take time to honestly examine this, or the ways we react to life, and we become aware of how often we encounter the same exact internal reactivity, the same exact patterns as we meet with different situations, different people and changing environments. We seem to always revert back to the conceptual image of a fixed self we have created from all the karmic and conditioned entanglements of past encounters, which are stored in our psychological emotional database. And this is very important because Being alive is not acting like that. Being alive is not copying and pasting. Being alive today is paying attention to today. Not paying attention to today or this moment is being half dead. Is being vested in that which no longer exists or no longer manifests at this point. about that, Chogyam Trungpa said, the record we have developed is what is called memory. Well, I said that before, right? Yeah, you don't have to hear that again. So our insistence to force a fixed self on a dynamic reality, to force a fixed self on a dynamic reality creates a painful misalignment with life. And it blocks our ability to meet life in a nimble, adapted, adaptive way. So while the future is wide open and light, light in terms of dynamic, we may experience it as totally hindering and burdening. Because in many situations, we actually don't experience this. And the perception of me is kind of like a grand production on a Broadway show that has been running constantly for years, like some shows, right? But unlike a standard Broadway show, this one is more like a family business that is passed on from generation to generation. The basic script for the play, the stage, with all the furniture and elaborate facade, the dressing rooms with all the costumes. All of it is an inheritance handed down to me by my parents, my upbringing, societal influences, and karma. And within this grand production, I am the producer and I am the main character. I'm the entire show. As long as I am on the stage, my role is clearly chiseled and defined. And the script is perfectly memorized, since it has been perfected for many years. Maybe I play the role of a victim. Maybe the perpetrator. The one who has high intelligence. Or the one who is not so smart. The loser, the winner, the one who succeeds, or the one who fails. which role my character is playing on the stage is not as important as what am I getting out of it? What keeps me on the stage? And I think we all experience that. It's the same old reactivities, different people, different circumstances, different situations, different days, times. Yet the reactivities are the same. We have to stop and look at it and ask, what's going on here? It seems like this stuck or stuckness in a cyclical pattern. While life is changing or life is alive, I am not. So it is a matter of life and death. So what keeps me on this stage? And the simple answer is knowing. I get to know who I am, and it makes sense. It gives me a sense of security. It gives me comfort, direction, a place from which to engage the world. Sense of familiarity. And there's definitely a sense of knowing that this kind, it comes naturally for us. So we can't say that's not there. Yet this is what we call delusion. It's that. It's that which is not engaged or aligned with reality. It's that tiny cocoon. That on one hand we say we want to free ourselves from, on the other hand we, we are terrified to get out of it. So we do all we can to stay there. And this is the dream we are training to awaken from. So the first step of spiritual awakening begins by becoming aware that we are actually asleep. And while sleeping, we perpetuate an ongoing production that is based on me and my story. This means to recognize, to begin to recognize the cracks in the solidity of the story. Or maybe to start to compare the story with reality just to look at what's going on and what what's going on in me or what am I fighting for so we can remain on the stage and perpetuate the same old lifeless reality but familiar Or we can realize that we are the nobody who is expressing itself within the wide and open spaciousness of reality. Fully alive. Fully alive. This is called Jiyu Zanmai, the playfulness of Samadhi. So back to Chogyam who said basically speaking we are not born we don't exist. If we are unborn if we never give birth to ourselves how is it possible that we are here then? We might say literally I was born from my mother and psychologically speaking I seem to have preconception of things. Ideas are born in my head, or my heart, and I am executing those ideas in my life. Right, that's what we say. And then he says, "But who said that? Who is saying that? That is the point. Who is actually talking about those things? Who is the question? Who is questioning that whole idea? Who is asking the question? The questionnaire, of course." But who is the questionnaire? Or rather, what is the questionnaire? If you look back and back and back, after and after and after, it is like overlapping onion skins. You approach outer space and you find that nobody actually said anything at all. That's why I tell you many times, who is saying that? You come, you sit down and you say what you say. And I ask you to examine, who is saying that? Do you know who is saying that? That you're saying it with so much conviction. So he says, nobody actually said anything at all. It was just a little burp. Somebody burped, which was misunderstood as language. Then after that, somebody said, I beg your pardon? (laughs) And somebody said, oh, of course, I'm sorry, I burped. That cosmic burp or cosmic fault. (laughs) Did you miss that? That cosmic burp or cosmic fault was an accident, a complete accident, unintentional. And that is what's called the origin of karma. Everything started on an accidental level. Everything is an accident. Those of you who are not part of our sangha might wonder why karma is brought up again yesterday, today. So we are, just a side note, we are in an Ango period, a three-month Ango period. In each Ango, we choose a theme to work with, and this Ango, the theme is karma. So many of our talks and discussions revolve around karma. And so in this koan, Jingyang is telling the monk to recognize the deadly obsession with creating a self and then attaching to it a concept of realization. So the creation of something, that cosmic fault, right? Building all that around it and then attaching the idea of realization to that which doesn't really exist in the first place. So anything, anything we become attached to, anything we conceptualize and become attached to, whatever what I think I am or what I have become, is no more than just an accidental cosmic burp. Now what a relief, isn't it? <laughs> think about that. If I am nothing but that. It's a relief because, because we spend so much energy on protecting something that is actually not there. But the work that we are, all the time and energy we are putting into it makes us feel as if it's there. And that's exactly how we perpetuate karma going forward. So the karma of the past shows up today and I say, yes, it's who I am. Of course it's who I am. Then it continues. Then I continue in that way. Or I believe that I continue in that way. So it is a relief. And realizing this, this monk should bow and retreat. But it's not what he did. He kept the dialogue going. And he said, If so, then I'll fold my hands on my chest and retreat. Three paces. And Jingyang said, You blind turtle under the seat of Mount Sumeru, don't wait for another scaring from the wrap on the head. So at this point, the monk was, all it is just went along with the rules of Dharma encounter. and counter. And he took the role of the defeated playing along. But this is also a waste of time and of no use. So Jingyang both scolded him and gave him a lifeline. If you keep playing these games and ask such questions, I will keep pulling the rug from under your feet. Another master was confronted by a monk with a similar question, said, you haven't eaten yet, so why are you asking about defecating? The verse, the imperial, the imperial decree comes down. And the footnote says, listen to the message of the sages. Listen. And, you know, listen to the, ma- to the message of the sages is, is not much different than listening to the night sounds. Opening the window, just listen to the sounds. It's the same message. The commanding order is distinct. And the footnote says those who violate those who violate it are decapitated. Decapitated because again we disconnect. We detach from life. So the commanding order is distinct the way things are the the dharma is not is not teaching anything that's not already is the way it is the dharma all the dharma is doing is shedding light on things as they are versus the way we think they are that's all it's doing so in that sense there's nothing special about dharma teachings Within the heartland, the emperor. Outside the borders, the general. And again, the footnote to that says, the Lord faces a thousand countries, the inviolable law of the Dharma. Everything is teaching that. We think we, think we can live outside of that. We think we can live within a dream. Well, we don't think, we just do it. But reality is reality. We can't escape it, but we can delude ourselves to, and play ego-driven games until it catches up with us. And it catches up. Well, it is catching up moment by moment. Without waiting for the thunder to rust the insects, how could he know the wind stops the coursing clouds? The footnote to that says, even getting up at dawn, there is already someone who travels by night. And this is about Jingyang, that he cannot be deceived. So it's about the teacher seeing right through this, right? You come and you say, I've awakened. Well, it's not that difficult to see. If that was the case, you wouldn't come and say that. Right? We don't shed one layer to pick up another. I'm just going to go to the last line of the verse because of time. Before the seal is wide open emptiness. Originally, there is no writing. The live, the living word, the live word here is before the seal, before we are born, before thought arises in the mind, before we begin searching, it is already so. It is already so before, while, and after. There's a story about Jingyang's dying. When Jingyang was ill and in his, his deathbed, his teacher, Kyogen, said to him, the body is an illusion, and within this illusion, affairs are carried out. If not for this illusion, the great matter would have, been to, would have no place from which to be undertaken. Right? If it's not for this illusion, where, how would you practice? He's saying. What do you say? He asked. Xingyang said, There is still this matter here. There is still this matter here. The state of his body, the state of the world, suffering. There is still all that. Kyogen said, And what is this matter? And Jingyang said, encircling the earth, the lustrous crimson orb at ocean bottom, not planting flowers. Then Jingyang paused and closed his eyes. Kyogen smiled and said, are you awake? And Jingyang said, I've forgotten what I was about to say. And then he passed away. An incredible way to pass away. And, you know, in that line, in that last line, everything is there. Everything we need to know about practice is already there. And it has to do with leaving no trace. It has to do with how much we want to Leave a trace. And so tomorrow, we have two periods of Samu to make sure we leave no trace. So when we leave tomorrow and leave no trace, it will be as if we were never here. As if nothing happened here over the last few days. And that's how we want to live our lives. Just like that. So whatever is happening, practicing tracelessness moment by moment, whatever is happening, we can maintain an awakened life. Not think about the idea of awakened life, but maintain it. And doing so, it also supports the continuous cultivation of spiritual maturation without us having to worry about it. No thought is wasted over it, we chant. That's what that means. No trace. No trace equals not knowing. Doing what we do and then ending it, wanting nothing for it. Creating a beautiful work of art and not signing our name on it. How many can do that? So, we're going to finish this session, right? In a few hours, a matter of a few hours. We do have a beautiful Jukai ceremony tomorrow for three dear Sangha members. And uh, it's always a wonderful opportunity to, to strengthen our resolve, right? To see that there are other people who want to practice want to sustain this beautiful practice. So we will hold the Jukai ceremony. We will clean before and after. We will connect with one another over informal lunch. And then open up. Open up to whatever comes without preconceived notions, without even the notion of, I feel good now, I'm sure it's going to be great. (laughs) Nothing, none of it. Just wide openness. Thank you.